Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. Scholarly Communication is an open and ongoing conversation about how communication does knowledge. The premise of the podcast is this. Communicating is not a transferring, as if knowledge might be vacuum-sealed and delivered totally conserved brain-to-brain. No, the premise of the podcast is that research communication is a place in time where people meet to represent and to recreate the things they claim to know. Communication is meaning, as knowledge is too, and meaning is not something we send or receive, it's something that we make. I am your host, Daniel Shea. I invite you to listen to authors of research, to chairs on conferences, and to scholars whose work focuses on communication and how the written word of science makes known the real world. My guest today is Christian Kessner, Associate Professor School of Computer Science, Carnegie Mellon University. Christian has a special interest in software engineering for software systems with ML components, including machine learning and production, but he also dedicates research effort to the areas of open source sustainability and software supply chain security. Christian serves as director of the CMU Software Engineering PhD program, which has the stated mission of educating the next generation of high-impact software engineering research, development, and educational leaders who will solve problems associated with building large-scale and critical software systems. So let's begin today's episode. Christian Kessner on scholarly communication. Hi, Christian. Welcome to the program. Hi. Thanks for having me. In the past few years, I see on your CV no fewer than four distinguished review reviewer awards and that's including such conferences as ASE and ICSE very high profile conferences in um, the area of software engineering I'd like to speak to you briefly as a reviewer because you're you're apparently good at it <laughs> and whenever and whenever I have people on this program um, researchers authors they often bring at some point in the issue of the peer review system as it's working in computer science and that things are not getting better. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. So maybe give us a view as to what you do when you're reviewing and why is it that apparently you've been uh, recognized for that? Okay. I'm, I'm not sure that there's a specific strategy, right? So we try to get high review quality. I think in software engineering in general, we're pretty good at review quality um, the strategy of how I try to review papers, um, I tend to read most papers in the pool first, and then I write reviews later when I kind of have an overview. I take notes while reading. And then the way that I try to teach reviewing to my, or writing reviews to my students is um, to identify two or three main points that are the argument. Um, so I would typically do that identify is the paper above the bar, yes or no, and then usually there are two or three arguments um, that are really the, the key points. So there's a small narrative in the beginning, kind of saying something nice, then identifying the larger problems, and then I tend to have a pretty long list of kind of just minor things that I saw when I read the paper, sometimes things that were unclear, sometimes suggestions for improvement, and so on. But I think the I tend to write slightly longer reviews, but I think the thing that distinguishes a good review is that it identifies which points are important and how this really relates to what we're looking for in a good paper. Um, And I think sometimes reviews are just kind of long bullet points of different things. And I think focusing on a few things and highlighting those kind of identifying the core themes, maybe it's really a novelty problem or it's really a clarity problem or something like this helps to make a review more readable and I think also hopefully more useful. 
I've often said to, I, as my listeners will know, I, I help scientists write and, and I'm at a computer scientist uh, department at the moment. And I've often said to people that, uh, and I'm interested to hear what you have to say about this, that the reviewer summary, so that first sentence sometimes or first paragraph where essentially it is this paper tries to, does, finds, looks for, um, is really key because it, 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 the review proper, let's say, hasn't started. But if you don't see their, your paper reflected, then you already know that you know something's wrong, <laughs> even if the, even if perhaps the reviewer themselves, which is not often the case, but even if the reviewer themselves doesn't call it out, um, that 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 summary really should match up quite closely with, let's say, one of the big ideas or two or three main arguments, right? Yeah, I've been I went back and forth on this of how much I value this paragraph in the beginning. Um, it feels a little bit formulaic, but it's. It's a good exercise to think about when writing the review what what is what I think the key message of the paper. So I tend to often rephrase it um, and frame it differently in the summary than maybe the abstract of the paper might do it. Um, but I think it's also quite common to essentially just copy the abstract or kind of shorter version of the abstract. Um, I think when overseeing other reviewers, um, it can be a decent exercise to see whether somebody paid attention. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm not sure how much I value that specific paragraph, though. But Yeah, that's good to know. And, and it's also it's one of those things that occurs when a process is put into place, like um, either, you know, publishing a paper, publishing your research or going through a review. Um, producing a review because of this formulaicness that you just referred to. You know, I mean, once you know that you have to provide that first sentence or paragraph, you know, I mean, it, it becomes just sort of an obligation in a sense right. where, where in a way, and, and, you know, the counterpart would be on the, the end of the paper in, inside of the introduction where they say nice things, as you say, but I mean, it's like, Hey, what is the real point here? Um, I guess what I'm, I'm driving at is, you know, as a reviewer, maybe just stick with this. How is it that you cut? How, how often do you find yourself in papers sort of cutting through things to get to what's really meant to, to get to these core arguments that you're talking about? Hmm. I think this, this should typically be obvious by the end of the introduction, but then sometimes later in the paper, you see that what the paper promised is not really what it was doing. So this is a thing where kind of the reframing happens. Otherwise, you could write it after the abstract or after the introduction as paragraph. But I think if, if the paper promises one thing, but then does a different thing, then I'd rather in this one paragraph write what the paper actually did rather than what it promises. Or I might say something like the paper promised to do X and provides evidence for Y or something like this. Um, yeah, so some sort of disparity there. Yeah, yeah. Um, this, this this becomes more clear later in the in the review, right? So this would typically be one of the main criticisms, but it might already show up in the first paragraph at least when the authors don't see themselves reflected or their intentions reflected, I think. And when you're sort of, you've, you've mentioned that you also, you know, help obviously your, your students in reviewing, because that's going to be a future task of theirs. And it's something that they should appreciate. Um, do you give them like lots of, let's say, practical advice, or do you rather give them sort of the high level view as to, you know, what a reviewer has as a function or a role inside of, inside of the entire publishing process or some mixture. I suppose what I'm interested in is, you know, reviewing as part of the collaborative effort of, of producing the paper. And I would, I would guess that very many early career researchers see the reviewer as somebody to bypass or not bypass. That's the wrong word to, to pass through as a, you know, sort of gatekeeper at some point. But I mean, there's probably a more constructive view of seeing them as, you know, collaborating in some respect on the work. I think when writing a paper, we think about what might the reviewer think here. But we put quite a bit of effort in my group, and I think in our program, into also teaching people how to review. Because at least for those that go out and stay academics, right? This is something that they're going to do over and over again. 
And it's not something that we usually quite teach. Um, so when discussing papers, we might talk about how we feel, like if we were to review this, what the arguments would be. Um, and that's especially one thing to focus on is how to not be very negative, right? All papers have some problems, but how do we kind of identify what are the positive parts and which of these problems are kind of minor things that can easily be fixed or can be ignored and which are really serious flaws in the paper. To actually teach reviewing, um, what we do is often engage students as sub-reviewers or kind of ask them, uh, offer them the opportunity to review a paper and they write a review and I write my own review, but I might incorporate some of their um, thoughts into this or so, some of their text. Um, and I give them access to the final version. So we discuss their reviews, we discuss my opinion. It's um, sometimes they convince me mostly, I kind of stick to, to my views, um, but they practice writing reviews and then they see what I would write. Um, some of the structuring, like how, how I would structure a review, I explicitly tell them and suggest that this might be a thing and might give them examples. Um, but I think a lot of this comes from practice, from reading papers, from reviewing papers, uh, from getting feedback on that. Um, yeah. I mean, what you're describing now uh, brings us, I would say, in part, not only to your role as PI, but your role as a director for the CMU Software Engineering PhD program, because uh, as you've just said, this is an important skill for a PhD uh, to take away from their time uh, studying, you know, to be able to review and to appreciate what the review is meant to achieve, what it's even there for. Um, can you also speak a little bit to this uh, general collaborative process that we find in science as, you know, the PI caring for the f sort of holistic training of a future researcher, but then also from a director's perspective, how to coordinate that across groups and uh, throughout an entire sub-institute at, at uh, Carnegie Mellon? Um, I think most of the actual training and work happens within the individual research groups. Um, the PhD program has some overarching functions. Um, we have some activities uh, toward reviewing to, um, too, but it's, I think, a smaller part compared to what you might do with your actual advisor. Um, the program, and partially this is a US function, this is very different in Germany, um, the program um, deals with selecting students. Um, so there's a yearly application process. We kind of, among the faculty, decide how many students we can admit. We don't necessarily admit to an advisor, but to the program and then do matching later within the first couple of weeks of the first semester. The program defines journal milestones, mostly coursework that we have. Um, we have a weekly seminar where students present their work once a year. Uh, to all other students. So in software engineering, because we're in a close enough community, um, we mostly all understand what we're doing. We go to the same conferences. So there's a very kind of collaborative atmosphere to present what you're doing to the other students. Most students know what everybody is working on. Um, that certainly helps. Um, and beyond that, the program mostly defines like requirements, cost requirements, thesis proposals, thesis defense, how is this going to work? Um, there's one core course in software engineering that every student has to take in their first semester. That's probably also forming community because all the incoming students together take this one course, which is mostly a paper reading seminar where we're reading and discussing lots of kind of the foundational software engineering papers, many of them. Uh, 40 years old um, and some trends and some, yeah, this kind of uh, thing. I, I like that mostly the role of the program. Yeah. I like the idea that you say sort of community building that say that common course that everyone has to visit. And, and it's interesting that it certainly focuses in on reading as a, it would seem to be a kind of very structured journal club in a sense from yep. the description. Yeah. From the description you've just given. So this, this idea of building a community, I mean, clearly this is going to be useful for the people during their PhD time, but 
I, I could imagine you would also recognize behind that a little bit of the values of collaborative work generally in research, uh, just to perhaps prime that in um, these young researchers. Is, is, is that also involved there? I think it's not very explicit. And I think we leave a lot of freedom to individual students and individual research groups. They often have very different styles of how they work within the group, within a certain advisor. Um, but we certainly want to foster a community atmosphere, right? Where students know each other, they share offices, um, they are in the same building, they they meet for lunch, um, they become friends, hopefully, right? Are not fully isolated, just everybody doing their own research. Um, we don't necessarily push for collaboration, but it happens in such an environment, maybe more often than not. Speaking to what you've referred to now a few times, sort of the individual PIs, the separate research groups, because it's true. I mean, from my experience as well across the institutes that I've worked at, that that's the core, right? That's the nucleus. Yep. That's where yep. so much happens. And and you you have your own group. You've you've been in other people's groups. Um, maybe and feel free to abstract or generalize here, but maybe give us a sense as to from your own observation. What seems to characterize the successful group where, you know, almost even objectively you can say, wow, they're publishing some good papers. You know, there's some really sharp researchers coming out of there. What seem to be some of the factors that that create that sort of a dynamic? That's, yeah, I don't, I don't know that there is, that I could identify success factors. There's certainly a wide variety of how people run things, how people explore different things, they have different benefits and maybe focus on different things. Um, so I think there are, there are groups that focus on, so there are different formats, for example, for paper reading groups um, that a lot of I and a lot of my colleagues have. Some of them focus on reviewing and kind of giving feedback on papers that group members are writing. So when you have a draft, you go to this paper reading group and then others provide feedback line by line or paragraph by paragraph. Um, I think that can be quite effective. Um, in my group, we have a paper reading group where we're actually reading the papers up front and then it's maybe a bit more like a review discussion sometimes, um, identifying what is well written, what can be improved, um, what do we not understand. And some others, um, some other groups focus more on presentations where it's um, in a round robin style, everybody in the group will either present their work or somebody else's work, like a paper. Um, it's less effort, you get maybe a bit more broader out. They all have different benefits. I have no idea that I would say that any of them make a group particularly successful. Yeah, I, mean, I, I suppose it's probably a mix would be one of those things that many people would say, hey, then they all have their benefits. So bring there's also not the ones, the one model that works for everybody, right? So there are different styles also in advising, um, hands-off, uh, hands-on advising style. And I think different styles are better for different students uh, with different backgrounds, with different preparations or expectations or personalities. Um, so I'm not sure that there is one. And I, I think as a school and as a department, we also want to really support different styles, right? We don't want to inform a uniform mechanism. Um, as long as people are not abandoning their students, right, but support them in some form, I think we're good with that. Um, we have one mechanism that's maybe um, useful for you here. Um, it's called the doctoral student review. Um, happens at the end of every semester where the faculty get together and talk about the students and write a formal feedback letter. Um, this can be a little bit scary from the student perspective because it's a formal evaluation, like a job evaluation um, in, in industry. Um, but it also, and I think that's a key point, it holds the advisors accountable. 
So um, twice a year, the advisors need to come together and talk about what's the progress of their student. And it shows that they know something about their students. And if there are problems, um, they can they talk to other faculty. What have you tried, right? Have you tried these writing exercises? Or have you tried focusing more on reading? Or whichever it is, right? So that's a form of not making everything uniform, but providing mutual support among the faculty also um, in how they're advising um, and how they deal with problems or support student learning and so on. That's a very interesting technique that, that uh, Carnegie Mellon has in place. I mean, and it's also interesting just simply because, you know, Carnegie Mellon in the area of computer science is, you know, world known. I mean, uh, to put it, Bluntly, you guys are leading the way in many areas. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, tools like this are probably interesting um, simply because they may be having effect. They seem to strike, as you say, that balance between keep your own style, but let's sort of inject a level of accountability. Um, right. It, it also sounds like you're saying you, you find it personally useful to have that reflective moment. Yes, very much. I did my PhD in, in Germany, and I think... There was essentially the thesis proposal, which I think was pretty new when I did it, which was a requirement, and I think half a year before I actually defended, and it was not particularly useful. And I think before then, there was never, I probably could have gone to my advisor and asked, but there was not a structured feedback process, right? There was not the forcing function. And I think if it wasn't here, I would work with my students probably from time to time but these meetings are a good forcing function because I tend to meet with my students and also other students in the department as program director, but I tend to meet with my students before that meeting to talk about how are things going? Um, is there something, um, how do you feel about your progress? Um, what are areas that we could improve? Is there something that I could change my advising, right? Uh, to better support people. And I think this forcing function of stopping twice a year and thinking about this and then also talking to others, other faculty about this is, I think, a very valuable thing here um, that I very much appreciate. Yeah, because the supervising job of somebody leading a research group is necessarily collaborative. I mean, mm -hmm. really, you know, the work is being produced as multi-authored papers and, you know, learning generally involves more than one person. But what you're drawing attention to is something that I've been discovering more and more is that collaboration is also groups of individuals. You know, there's separate beings there with their own, as you say, personalities. And, you know, science as it works needs to also acknowledge that. And it seems like Carnegie Mellon is putting in place the, you know, the let's say structure for that to be able to happen because, there is no one solution to how this, you know, a software engineer needs to research, right? I right. mean, there, there, there needs to be that flexibility because at the end of the day, you know, I mean, science is a creative pursuit. So, you know, no two novelists write a novel the same way. No two papers are going to be produced in the same way. Right. And, and all the students are different, right? Have different styles, different preferences. And, and that's a good thing. And we want to support that. Another area that I like to talk about uh, when I have researchers here on the program, we've been talking a little bit now about uh, collaborating and uh, and reviewing, is of course uh, reading and writing. I try to hold them apart. Um, in fact, I've been sort of promoting the idea of, we've all heard about scientific writing and there's courses for it and so on. Although I would argue just as, you know, the research um training of a, a PhD needs to be individual, as we've just described it, so should the communication component of that as well. So a scientific writing course, in my opinion, is less effective than it being integrated into the person's training. Uh, but I'm, I'm digressing slightly because the thing I'm trying to <laughs> promote on this podcast is also the idea that there is scientific reading. And the idea behind that is that, um, you know, it's, it's one thing to focus in on what many people would say would be the language side of things when you're writing, because it's just so obvious. It's right there. You've got to fill white space and stuff. But when the space is filled and you have pages there in front of you and you've got these papers, it's not a given that 
anyone new to that area or even perhaps a few years in that area is going to automatically be using the text, quote unquote, correctly, right? Okay. Um, maybe maybe I, uh, I digressed. <laughs> I'll come back to um, the idea simply that I'm, I'm trying to bring it a place for reading. I mean, it seems very much so that Carnegie Mellon is doing this in the software engineering area. As you say, you have the common course, which is a sort of journal club. Um, right. But uh, um, I mean, many researchers who I'm, I've spoken to on this uh, have, on this podcast have 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 welcomed the idea of talking about scientific reading because right. of the fact that, hey, you know, we need to acknowledge that, you know, just frequency wise, this is what a researcher is going to be doing more of than writing papers. And it's a complex, complicated task. Right. I don't know that I have specific guidance there, right? But um, I think, yes, reading a lot, reading, digesting literature quickly, I think is a core skill. Um, it's part of the core course. Um, partially, the, the course is designed in a way that you have to cope with better reading. Um, it's trying to get students out of an undergraduate mindset where everything is presented in detail and you're expected to understand everything to get to a point where you're reading things for the information that you want to get out of it, right? You don't necessarily need to understand every single thing if it's not really closely related to your area. In the core course, what we're doing is we're assigning roughly eight papers a week um, and typically ask them to, to write summaries or discuss certain elements in there. We provide a little bit of reading guidance typically to kind of focus on this part of the paper and this part. And students often are forced to learn that they should not read every single detail and should not try to understand every single reference or every single argument in the paper if it's not relevant to the task. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it is really important to the reading question and then you need to go a little bit deeper, but often you don't have to. And I think that's a good skill, kind of how to identify what's important in the paper. There's a little bit of discussion in there. What's the typical structure of a paper? Where do you find the important information? What do you expect? And when is a paper surprising if it doesn't follow that structure? And that helps with reading, I think, too. It's not a part that I usually teach. Um, I think I have a very linear reading style. I don't jump around. Um, but I think I have this tendency to decide, oh, yeah, I understand what the point is. And I don't necessarily care about all the details. So I'm willing to jump forward in the paper quite a bit or kind of just read, kind of the, try to get the key points and move on to the next paper. What I find key in the course that you've just described there is this idea that you know, you're given a guide you're meant to be looking for something and that there's right. a task that it's relevant against because, you know, uh, th th this is very important, this transition from, you know, the undergrad to the master's or the research level of work, because, right. you know, on the undergrad level, you're, as you say, you're kind of meant to understand everything just because, right? <laughs> as opposed to when you're researching, you need to find out X and, and then at the un at the undergrad level, it's also typically written to be much more directly understandable, right? You have a textbook that identifies the key information and presents it in a very linear way. Papers are often not written that way because they assume a lot of background and then here's the inc increment and you might not care about all of this in there, right? It's a, it's a different way of approaching information gathering from, from the literature. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's definitely, I mean, you're putting your finger on one of the key challenges in scientific reading, which, um, you know, isn't trained from high school on through undergrad, um, because right. the focus and the text types are just so, so different. It, actually, you bring up there also an extremely important word, uh, term, concept in the area of scientific reading, and that's assumptions. Um, for me, these tie into what you were saying earlier as a reviewer when you talked about, you know, the two or three main points that are the argument, right? An argument is always kind of built upon an assumption. You know, I mean, when you argue something, you, you, you give it what we would perhaps in rhetoric technically call a warrant. But I mean, less technically, it just simply means, well, what is the connection between A and B? What is the logic? 
why is it that you know that proves the point and leads us directly to C? And and that warrant needs to be of value. You know, it needs to be like if you're going to use statistics to prove your point, well, then in your field, statistics need to be a valuable way of measuring things or whatever it might be, right? Yep. Yeah, and there are certain patterns that are common, right, that you can learn and recognize um, of what typical patterns for papers are, right, um, and what, what the common forms of arguments and assumptions or what methods are considered reasonable for this kind of work in this area. And I think that's something that you have to learn over time as you immerse yourself in the research culture. And a course like the one that you're describing, or let's say even inside of your own group when you have PhDs and uh, you're bringing them from year one to year two and year two to year three maybe, um, those are obviously the introductions. Those are the experience gathering moments. Um, like you say, I mean, this this it, it actually just proves how complex scientific reading is that it takes this long to figure it out, right? You know, I mean, it, it's something that grows on you, and then you start to be able to move through a paper at a at a much faster clip than you did, right. you know, ten years previous. Um, but maybe if you could just highlight maybe one or two sorts of aha moments that you can remember students of yours having, or if it's not so dramatic, <laughs> maybe just shifts in their thinking that you've noticed in the way that they read or what they're coming up with or pointing out after some time in a paper. I, I don't know that I can remember any specific example. I, I remember this from the core course always, like um, four papers per lecture, um, some students would spend a whole day for, for reading those four papers. And that's really not sustainable throughout the semester. And they would complain in the beginning. And then you often see sometimes throughout the semester, hopefully about a month in, it clicks, right? They kind of get it that they don't need to, it's a new concept for them. And some, some of these papers are like 40 years old, right? They don't necessarily meet our current standards. Um, but they, they figure out, oh, yeah, I don't, from reading this Parnas paper on information hiding, right, I don't really need to understand the full example in detail. Um, I need to get the key point of the paper. And then there's all these sections here that might not be, maybe not in this paper, but maybe I don't care about the evaluation for this specific purpose, right? I only care about that here's an idea and the idea was evaluated, oh, yeah, they did some user study, fine, right? Um, and I think you can, if you're reviewing a paper, it's different. But if, you, if you're just reading it to get information, I think you, it's really about finding the key argument, the key innovation, or what you can take away from it. And I don't know that I have a specific paper or a specific student where this happened, but I think in the grand scheme, I just see this of how students get so much faster. Uh, and it's pretty abrupt, typically, when it clicks, right? When they realize, oh, yeah, I don't need to understand every single line. I don't need to go back and read this section five times. Yeah, I mean, that's a key uh, technique when it comes to scientific reading. And, uh, you know, I mean, as you said earlier, you need to be reading a lot and quickly. Yep. And... You know, I mean, so much of undergrad or the or the education that occurs before that doesn't prepare people, you know, right. I mean, for that, because it's essentially slow reading that's taught there. Right. <laughs> you know, you spend and half an hour talking about three sentences. And, uh, right. and a lot of people really jump around while reading. Um, it's not something I, I do. That's why I always find this a little bit hard to teach, but a lot of people's say, look at the captions of the figures, right? Or look at the research questions later in the paper. Look at the conclusion first. Um, and that seems to work for a lot of people. And I think that's what I see a lot of my students are also doing, that they, yeah, look at the figures, look at the captions, right? Get a sense of the structure of the paper before you dive in. Well, I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, we, we will talk about writing in a moment, but interestingly enough, I've heard plenty of researchers telling me that you know, they, they sort of build up their paper from, you know, figures or tables and so on, because they're, they've got the main analysis and um, maybe also, you know, schematic uh, views of the framework and how the entire process runs. So right. 
the reader also, going to that kind of represents what the writer is thinking in a way. Right. Also in writing, I think we tend to write for a very distracted reader, right, intentionally, so that it's possible to skim the paper, to make it easy to read it fast without looking at every single line. But one one challenge, uh, maybe one last uh, point here about scientific reading before we go to, to talk mm-hmm. about writing a little bit more. One challenge in all of this clearly, though, is that the comprehension be accurate. You know, I mean, with all this speed, clearly there's there's room for error. So I wonder what might be either some of your own techniques or things that you've just noticed other people doing or that you've taught even perhaps in your group or, or in the course there where you have some sort of a check, some sort of a, you know, technique for being sure Um Somehow, I mean, because this brings us back to the reviewing. I mean, clearly you, you you do notice the key points in there. So it's a nice balance to strike, isn't it? Yeah, between speed and accuracy. And I wonder what you could say on that topic. The reading for reviewing is quite different, I would say, because that kind of attention I would otherwise only give the closest related work or something that I want to build on. Um, I think that's not the way that I would read most papers. Um, I think for, in a lot of contexts in education setting, you can have a discussion about the paper. In our course, students read this, they write something, and then we talk about this in class or we give feedback on the writing, or you can see what other people have written. So you kind of can check yourself a little bit of how your understanding compares to that of others or when it's actually discussed, whether it meets it. In our paper reading group, I think this is similar where um, you might read a paper pretty quickly, but then we get together and we talk about the paper and you might discover what were all the things that you missed or misunderstood. I think if you're just reading a paper for your research, you might just misremember it, miscite it. There's, I don't know that there's an easy way to check things. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, I think I think that's already an important answer. I mean, it comes back to that answer again and again, this idea of collaborating then. Yeah. And as a reviewer, you you discuss with other reviewers too, right? Especially at conferences, you actually have a discussion about the reviews and about your understanding. This is actually quite quite often quite illuminating where I discover some misunderstanding in my reading of the paper when another reviewer points something out or I missed a glaring gap in the paper, right? Where I was positive about it, but I completely missed a massive problem. And Yes, there, I think, having multiple people and actually having some engagement, which I think we actually have in a very good way in software engineering conferences, I think our review process there is pretty good compared to what I've seen in other fields, where there's actually a discussion about the reviews often, or especially if reviewers disagree, I think that can help, that can check at least a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's even a term for that from philosophy of science, intersubjective reliability. Mm-hmm. The idea that, you know, simply any one view will always be biased and no one test will ever prove anything. So, you know, that's right. why science bases itself uh, collaboratively in its work. Um, and again, I, I take that as, you know, an extremely effective way of, of reading better. And to transition, um, it's also the way that writing is done, um, you know, point to the recent paper that you've read where there was just one author. I mean, they're out there, but they're certainly in the minority, aren't they? Yep. I think I've written one paper in the entire time that was a single author, and I don't think we ever formally published, or I did never formally published that. Um, not written a book alone, but um, yeah, it's very un- uncommon to write something alone, at least in our field. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean the numbers show us throughout most fields that that's uh, some some have larger teams. Uh, physics is known for having massive teams, um, but yep. that's a technical question more than anything. Yep. Um, but speaking about the writing, I mean, we we've been looking now at the paper primarily from the reader's side. Let's say so. Let's let's just sort of flip the entire thing on its head and let's let's look at it from the producing side, from the producer's side. 
And it, it might be interesting to just sort of review, uh, return to some of the questions that we were talking about. So arguments, assumptions, or even the idea of how the paper is set up. So I once asked um, Peng Lui, actually, who, who's in machine learning, um, a researcher about, okay, so where would you look for the key insight in a paper? And he paused a moment and said, you know, it's always really a synthesis. And he expanded upon that saying that, you know, the real key insight is something that an experienced reader is able to extract from the entire paper in a way. Um, so if that's true, I mean, if you disagree, then please disagree. <laughs> but if that's true, I wonder what that says to the writer. I mean, it, it, I, I, my first sort of takeaway is that, well, you know, you have to build an entire paper. You can't just rely upon sort of repeated little bits here and there. I feel like as a writer, you want to support the reader. Um, you want to tell the reader very explicitly what the point is. They shouldn't have to read the entire paper and need to kind of find it. Um, I think partially this is biased, by the way, that I'm reading, but um, if at the end at, at the end of the introduction of a paper, it's not clear what problem this paper solves, how the problem is solved, and what the key insight is, then I'm grumpy with the paper. Um, because then I, I'd rather kind of by the end of the introduction, I want to know, yeah, this is what this is about. This is kind of the key idea. And everything from here is essentially just explaining it in more detail if I care. Um, that's how I would expect to read a paper, and that's how I write a paper. And I think I don't want the reader to do a lot of work um, synthesizing details across a paper. I want to, I want to make it very easy and very obvious what the key idea is. And I think you have to, because otherwise, the reviewer will not get it. Um, the readers might be confused. Um, so. I think I, I, I prioritize that. And I think that creates a particular challenge for particularly early career researchers. Um, this, this, you know, being stating very explicitly what the point is. Right. Um, I, the work I do together with scientists writing, it's, it, it, it continues to amaze me that, you know, I myself have a background in, you know, linguistics and English studies, you know, but mm -hmm. I understand communication. That's why I'm doing this work. And, and, and with simple questions, I can get to that explicit statement, but that's not, let's say the natural tendency that they go right. to. I think, I think they're led, misled, led down a false path, red herringed, if you like by thinking this needs to be a certain way, sound a certain way, there's things I'm supposed to do. Right. And different students come in with different backgrounds. Some have very little writing experience before. Some are really biased by novels, which have a very different structure, or even um, nonfiction writing and kind of popular writing. And some of them are gone through the American kind of liberal arts education where it's very much focused on essay writing, but even then you kind of have to kind of get away from the flowery language, get to the point, right? Don't just pet everything. Um, so I think, yes, this is a typically a pretty explicit process to kind of try to figure out what's the structure, what's the argument, what's the key point. Um, and to make that explicit in the paper. And I think that requires a couple of iterations and a couple of papers to get there. And what I really like about your answer there is you, you, you offer this picture of a very broad draw on people with very different sorts of text experiences, you know, yeah. I mean, the liberal arts in America. I mean, I went through the American high school system. We wrote essays until we fell over backwards right. and, 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 and you're right, right? There, there, there's a style that's expected. And then you've got people who, you know, may have an entirely different educational background. I mean, even here in Germany, the writing that's done at a gymnasium is of a different style, right. than you would expect, yeah. but nobody is at the high school level or the equivalent you know, preparing this huge population of future students or researchers for the type of writing that they'll need to do at their work. 
correct. And I don't think we do this very explicitly in our PhD program too. Some universities do this in undergraduates, right? Especially on the more liberal arts side that writing is part of this. But again, it's a different style of writing um, that I think a lot of these pro programs do compared to kind of the typical academic writing that we do. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've noticed, and 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 this is certainly something I'd I'd like to hear your opinion on. I've noticed that in the let's call it style. I mean, the type of text used in a paper in software engineering or computer science more generally, it has a sort of dialogic sense to it. In other words, you're you're continually keeping the reader on board. You're yes. you're you're deflating criticism. You're you're making sure that, and, and this is why sometimes the sentences, you know, parentheses, um, footnotes yep. are not so common, but parentheses and side notes, and yep. and it's it's about pacing that and not the rhythm of the words in their places. Right, right, and no cliffhangers. Right, you tell everything up front. Um, it's very clear where things are going and you probably overemphasize structure. And partially that's because people are skimming the paper, they're jumping around, right? So you want to catch them again. Um, I think in empirical software engineering, there's a very common style that at the end of the evaluation, you have actually fat boxes in the paper where you summarize the key findings, right? Again, this helps the reader to even if they're just skimming the paper to come back and find the key insights, tables can have a similar function, right? Or figures, um, yeah, kind of really thinking about how can we help the reader along, um, not how to make it exciting or how to make it a nice story. Yeah, which really puts the demand upon the writer that he or she fully comprehend their own project. And right. this itself is not a given. In fact, one of my um, sort of techniques together with, with researchers is to get them to write outside of the paper more about what it is that they're thinking so that they can enter the paper and state it bluntly and clearly. Okay, yeah. Sometimes we, I encourage students to do a presentation, especially a very short presentation, like five minutes uh, for the content of the paper, because that really forces you to think about the key message, right? And then I think once you, which is pretty hard, um, but once you have that key message, if you can explain it in a few slides in five minutes, I think then it becomes much easier to take that message into a long form and fill in the, fill in the details. And it is an, a, a point of structure, not necessarily structure as in paper organization, but yeah, I mean, it brings us back to this idea of argument. I mean, you talked earlier about this idea that, you know, promising one thing, delivering another, you yep. know, it, it, suddenly in the middle of the paper, this thing appears, which, you know, as an experienced reviewer, you realize, oh, geez, that's the core. This is what's really going on here. Right. And, you know, I mean, it's easy for that hole to appear in the writer's thinking because they haven't thought enough, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And I remember this when writing my bachelor's thesis, um, that, to me, the structure was clear, right? So I wrote it, but I got I got the message back from the reviewer um, or my advisor back then that I need to write more in the introduction. I need to connect these things more. And I think I could have kind of language lawyered my way through and said, here I specifically wrote this and here I did, right? But that's not how people are reading it if they're jumping around. You actually have to repeat this. You have to think about at the beginning of a section, bring people back to what have we just discussed and how is this now building on top of this? And I think this kind of narrative structure and kind of anticipating what the reader, that they don't have the full knowledge that I have, right? They Maybe it's because I skimmed, maybe it's because the paper is so long at this point that they don't remember everything, right? But expecting kind of, perfect recall of everything that I said before is not going to happen. So you kind of have to write for that. And I think that requires some practice again. Um, and it feels tedious in the beginning. Um, I remember when I first did this in this bachelor thesis, it felt so redundant, right? You're kind of just saying, here's gonna what I just said, here's gonna what I'm saying next. Now I'm saying it, now I'm saying what I just said, right? And how it's connecting to the next thing, which I already repeated three times. Um, and 
I think you can overdo it a little bit, but it's probably better if you overdo it than if you underdo it. I think that's a great point. I mean, I often talk about the repetitiveness of um, of a paper, but it's a rhetorical repetitiveness. It's not like you're just copy-pasting bits. It's like now you're going through, for example, experimental results. So your hypothesis, which you've already mentioned, suddenly takes on you know new significance because you're in the actual you know pan out. Did this happen? Did this not happen? So the repetition is expansive. Whereas when you were setting up maybe the methods for that experiment, it was just a brief mention, right? Right. right. Um, one of the purposes of this podcast, just to close out here, one of the purposes of this podcast, as I've said, is really to help the research. So by that, I mean, everything from, you know, research groups being run better so that PhDs end up being trained better and, and research better in the future, all the way down to, you know, reviewers or chairs making better decisions on submissions and so on. Um, it's about transparency. So if I gave you that brief platform, <laughs> anything big or small that occurred to you in, in, in the pipeline of the research where you said, if we could just change that this way, you know, things would improve for sure. I think I would like less emphasis on trying to judge importance of work in reviewing and in writing. So we have this tendency of always trying, especially in software engineering, always emphasizing what's the immediate practical impact, right? And then you get these papers that do something interesting um, and it lays the foundation for future work, but it's you have this one section then often in the end of where they're trying to make a connection. Um, how could somebody use it immediately right now? And that's something that I think is not great for our community and kind of putting too much emphasis on kind of what's just the current hot topic or what's a sexy topic, right? Um, what feels fresh? We should rather kind of, I'm, I'm a, a fan of if it's sound research, let's publish it and let the community figure out what's important later. Well, thank you very much for that, Christian. That is uh, Christian Kessner. And thanks to you, my listeners as well. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.